I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEPS podcast, our series of conversations with leading scholars in the field. With us today is uh, Jonah schulhofer Wool. He's from the University of Virginia, and he's a research fellow with the Middle East Initiative and the International Security Program at the Belfer Center at Harvard University. Uh, Jonah, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Mark. So you've been researching uh, the war in Syria for quite some time. Uh, we've been uh, talking about this for a while now. And so I, just, I guess I wanted to start just by asking you about uh, your sense of how did Syria get to the kind of armed opposition and armed conflict that we've seen over the last couple of years? You know, what is it that made it this type of war? One of the most interesting questions, I think, about Syria is how we get that transition that you're talking about. And in particular, a lot of people have a very clear sense of how the protests developed early on, how opposition to the regime developed early on, and how the regime responded. But then there's a clear kind of second phase to the war in which it's really militarized uh, opposition uh, against the regime. And the regime undertakes different kinds of operations against the opposition in response to that. And so in the civil wars literature, Unfortunately, there isn't a clear understanding of how we get escalation uh, of different forms of political violence, or even if sometimes it's not escalation from within a form, but it's really a new form of violence that's starting. You know, Maybe protests and contention is one thing, but having an all-out civil war is actually an entirely separate process. How do we connect the two of those? And, so and the multiple steps along the way. You go from the Shabiha and that kind of like you know secretive or right. furtive violence to the shelling of homes and right. this massive demonstration of state violence. And and the I think the difficulty for many obs- casual observers and for scholars is is to say, should we consider, for example, the Shabiha? Is that a technique of autocratic rule, or is that part of a civil war, or is it both? Mm-hmm. And you could apply different literatures to get some insights about that, but we also don't know whether those insights should travel. So one of the uh, nice reference points for thinking about the escalation of these protests is a literature on social movements um, with a lot of empirical richness, but that's been done especially in Western Europe. And there are clear findings there that police repression of protests leads to escalation. But does that transfer to Syria? Well, does it? (laughs) <laughs> so in this new project I've been working on, I, I look at the escalation uh, principally focusing on uh, fatalities after July uh, 2012 um, in, that, in the year following it. And basically the idea is that was the point at which the opposition la- launched a large offensive against the regime. And so this is a new phase of the conflict. And if we can connect things very early on uh, in the initial months of the uprising, then we might be able to see a clear link in escalation. So I have some preliminary findings there. Um, and they're consistent in an interesting way with what we might think about as individual level incentives to become involved in armed opposition. So based on um, information about protests and how the regime responded to them and also undertook other repressive actions at the same time, Uh, deploying military forces, engaging in violence outside of the protests, the opposition doing the same thing, Um, we actually see that, first of all, any repression that took place in the context of a protest seems to produce 
uh, an escalation of violence later on in this militarized phase. So repression leads to more violence, um, and you might say that's consistent with that social movement's literature. Um, and at the same time, any kind of uh, violence that's exercised by the regime not in the context of the protest seems to be related to uh, lower levels of fatalities mm. later on, and this is at a local level. So that's something we've also talked about uh, in our earlier conversations about the war, this idea that for some reason a lot of the um, struggle that's going on in Syria is really locally based, and it's hard to understand the drivers of that, given that we know that a lot of this is a national-level process, too. If it's a national-level process, why are things playing out so locally? Right. So what I think we can do is to step back and say, okay, for individuals on the ground at the time these protests were happening, what were the incentives to either really stay out of harm's way, show yourself to be a complete loyalist to the regime, etc., or really to go all in on participating in this armed insurrection. And there, uh, what I'm interested in exploring is the notion that um, there's basically a, a calculus of resistance whereby individuals may end up participating because they're afraid of the consequences of not participating. So this kind of flips the collective action problem on its head. Mm -hmm. um, there's been earlier work by Civil War scholars, Stathis Kalivas and Matt Coker, have an interesting paper where they show that, for example, in Vietnam, it was actually, you're maybe safer being a member of uh, one of the armed groups, being in the Viet Cong than not being in the Viet Cong. If you're in an armed group, you have access to information. Uh, you have access to protection and so on. Being outside of it, you may still be targeted because people may believe that you're in the group. And so in Syria, the question was, um, could civilians sort of have the prospect of really being out of it, or was there a sense in which they might be targeted by the regime even if they didn't participate? And given that threat, maybe uh, they made the choice to participate because even if they didn't, they would be targeted. That's interesting because, I mean, as you know, back in kind of the second half of 2011, there was a very important and vital debate that went on among, among Syrians in the opposition about whether or not to take up arms. And uh, that was, a, I think, an extremely consequential debate. Right. Um, and actually, I think the, that argument actually foreshadows many of the things that, that we've since seen. But one of the things that participants in that debate will now say when you, when, when you talk to them about it or when they write about it is that ultimately they had no choice, mm. that uh, they were forced into taking up arms because at a certain point regime violence and the reality of the guns flowing into the country put them in a situation where there was no longer any real alternative right. to taking up arms. Does that roughly fit with the kind of narrative that you're giving or is there, some, is there a, a different... So, so I think that fits um, the part that I, I want to especially emphasize is that it's the earliest phases of the uprising where this repression seems to be having this long-term impact. So that's consistent with what you just said, but it seems to operate through a slightly different mechanism, which is it's not just that people are availing themselves of opportunities once those exist, 
but it's also maybe that systematically at the local level, an early experience of this is shaping whether later on people do decide to take advantage of those opportunities. So we see variation locally in the extent to which you get clashes with the regime later. Now, of course, there are all sorts of other things going on in the background. You have the regime strategically retreating from certain areas. Um, you have, at the same time, all the international politics of the war going on. So we need to be able to separate out, say, the impact of Hillary Clinton saying that Assad uh, is no longer legitimate and must go. That clearly you know, has some kind of an impact in driving people to think that the rebellion might be successful. Um, all of those are going on at the same time. But the point that I want to illustrate in this research is that these basically fundamental calculations that people might make about security can matter, and that that's independent of things like sectarian identity. Um, it's independent of these opportunities for rebellion. And it's not to say that those other things don't matter, but that also this is one of the processes that can lead to that escalation of violence. One of the things that we've talked about uh, a lot over the years is just the fragmentation and the localization of the, of the Syrian insurgency or, or opposition. And as you say, this, this goes back all the way to the, the way the, the opposition came together. Um, and I guess, you know, looking back at it now, uh, it's kind of hard to separate out the causal direction. Was mm. it that the fragmentation led to this kind of insurgency? Or was it that the decision for an insurgency led to fragmentation as groups took up arms and right. organized themselves at the local level? You know, when you're looking at this in the fine-grained way that you do, you know, how, how do you think about that sort of thing, the mm. role that uh, this kind of localized insurgency plays in all of this? The histories of the armed groups in Syria are very informative in this regard, and it's something that uh, when you apply the literature on civil wars to Syria, uh, you could mistakenly jump to a lot of conclusions because there's writing on fragmentation in civil wars. There's writing about the you know, proliferation of competing armed groups. But that's not how this uh, ends up getting to the point it is now today in Syria. Instead, what we see is that the groups formed locally. So it wasn't the case that you had larger formations that were then breaking down. Mm -hmm. They weren't necessarily larger groups to begin with. Um, so the insights that we have about why, say, military pressure might lead a group to fragment along certain lines, they don't really apply to Syria. So it's fragmented, but there was never a process of fragmentation. Right, and, and I think the sort of the key element that's missing from, uh, from how we typically think about civil wars is that Syria was a strong autocratic state before this war started. So it's not necessarily your typical situation in which you see an insurgency organized against a government that builds gradually. There's some element of state weakness. Mm -hmm. And then we see this clash between the state uh, and uh, the opposition. Instead, in Syria, what you get is, uh, you know, you've studied the international politics uh, of the Arab uprisings, uh, so I'm curious for your reaction on this, but it seems to me there's a kind of shock to uh, perceptions of the strength of the regime and perceptions of the possibility for revolt, and that drives a lot of the onset of this, which means that it's onset in conditions in which we wouldn't normally see that. And because of that, the organization is also quite different from what we would normally expect right. to see. So under conditions of um, 
sort of very dense security services, um, lots of information available to the regime on the local population and so on, we can't expect there to be the ability to organize uh, at a higher level and form really hierarchical organizations. That would basically be suicide in some mm -hmm. way, at, depending on where you are in this war, where you're located in Syria, what time period this is in. Instead, you know, we should expect things much more like the IRA organizing in Northern Ireland, where you have a cellular structure because anything more than that and the authorities are on to you. So we see both patterns because, as I said, the regime also retreats from parts of Syria. Then you do see larger formations built. But you have simultaneously around the country a lot of underground organizing going on at the same time. So right now, the, the, uh, as we're talking, uh, we're about a weekend of the cessation of hostilities agreement, uh, the ceasefire. Um, and it, it's actually quite remarkable the extent to which this fragmented opposition has, for the most part, adhered to it thus far. And um, they've been able, and we've seen now the reemergence of demonstrations uh, in in you know the absence of barrel bombing and that sort of thing. We seem to see kind of a, some kind of different pattern emerging. Um, when you look at this, what do you think the implications for the groups that you study would be if there were a sustained de-escalation? If you saw kind of a freezing in place, beginning of negotiations, and you know some kind of you know, again, not perfect, but, you know, widespread reduction of violence. Yeah. So I'm very pessimistic about the possibilities here because I think if we were, if we were talking about this abstractly and saying, okay, there's a peace process going on, what would happen with these groups? Would there be some kind of consolidation? Would they be a bargaining partner for the government? Abstractly, that all makes sense. But What's driving the so-called peace process right now is really the al-Assad regime backed by Russia. And if that's the case, um, I think it's logical to say that it's not in their interest to allow the formation of a sort of new political um, alliance that is a potential counterweight to the regime. So I wouldn't expect greater organization and unification of sort of disparate opposition groups, in part because that's precisely what the regime doesn't want. Um, it's likely that if such a formation were to take place, the regime isn't going to be interested in pursuing negotiations with it. And I think that's what makes the current peace process so difficult. Um, it's, it's one of these cases where, you know, there, there's sort of a longstanding tradition in literature on peace building uh, that questions whether actively peace building makes sense because you're creating sort of false incentives for the belligerents. And I think the negotiations in Syria uh, always pose these kinds of questions. If without the international community and without the diplomatic pressure from the United States, European Union, Russia, if this would never be happening in the first place, uh, do we really expect anything to be self-sustaining if that pressure isn't on all the time? Well, I guess um, that seems an appropriately uh, uh, skeptical uh, stance to take at, at, the at, at this particular moment, but, uh, but I guess we'll see. Um, I want to thank uh, Jonah Schulhofer-Wolf for joining us on the Poll Maps podcast. Um, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Mark. Thank you.